Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and VIM, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. In the studio with me again, because this is part two, is Roberta Coalition, who is the Chief Information and Technology Officer at Dialogue Design out of Canada. Shane Berger is Principal and Director of Technical Innovation at Woods Bagot. Holly St. Clair is the Chief Technology Officer at Sasaki. And Nick Cameron is an Associate Principal and the Director of Digital Practice at Perkins & Will. It's good to have you all back with us in the studio today. It's always a pleasure. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I think about the theme of design for equity. To tell you the truth, I think that in most cases across the design environment, it is more of a Marcom uh, banner than it is a practice. But we believe at Design Intelligence that it's a mandate for the design professions. So the question I have for you is, how does the interplay of technology, of, of data, and of design serve to expose and empower and ensure that this mandate of design for equity becomes a prioritized reality across our industry? Holly, could I start with you and some of your thoughts about that? So thinking of data and technology and design, it's really not much different than thinking about technology, data, and any other application. Data and technology and design really reflect who we are as innovators and as a society, and so it reflects our biases as well. You know, I do think we have to be careful around not thinking that the bias that, we, that is in our data is noise that should be um, eliminated, um, especially in design, um, when we're designing for communities and, and people and, and cultures. We really actually need to be more thoughtful and actually take inequities and race into account in the data and really think about it in our own designs and really think about the cultural and social references that would need to be used um, in order to make the, our designs feel welcoming and reflect the different cultures and societies that we uh, often are designing for. Um, it really comes down to having the right people in the room and the, people, the right people in the room are the people who reflect the clients that you're serving and the diversity of people that you might be serving in the future. There's been some really interesting new um, research and discussions coming out about race-positive generative design um, and thinking about how we really can take that into account and how do we teach our young up-and-coming designers, right? Because one of the biggest critiques we have is that there's not enough people of color that are in our field. How do we make sure that they do come into our field and feel welcomed and that we're speaking to them in a way that's meaningful and acknowledges the strengths and the vision and the beauty that they bring to the design field? There's this really interesting group called the Culturally Situated Design Tools, CSDT, which is really taking the different designs that show up in various cultures, whether it's Celtic design and the patterns that were generated there, or it's um, hair braiding in different salons. They use those as ways to explain generative design to the students they're teaching in their, in their STEM curriculum. And that's some of the really interesting ways I think we can start to think about inequities and race and the best way to get the room to reflect who we are serving, and how to get that room to be the right team to design for our communities. Yeah, yeah. Dave, there's, there's something there you said that I think is pretty important 
you know, design, I always like to say, is a team sport. So we can push our own bias onto the data we're looking at or what we're reading. But if we're really doing a good job and not making it a Marcom effort, it is making sure that our teams are diverse and that we're challenging one another when we're reading that data or get trying to gain those insights. Um, and I think in terms of from the technology side, we can prepare those reports, we can put them together, but it's all it should certainly be coming down to the team and how the team is interpreting that data and how they're challenging one another to read that data. Yeah. Yeah. Shane, some thoughts on all this? Yeah, I was actually thinking back, I think it was roughly about a year ago, I, I was uh, maybe less than that, was reading the book Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. And there was a, it started to call to mind some of the work that I had done a long time ago and, the, and work that I see people still doing now in gathering data through computational and parametric approaches to design that make a lot of assumptions about human physical attributes and behavior and how people work in a collective versus as individuals. And it was quite interesting because one of the things that she continually talks about in this book is this idea of the typical human and the typical group of people. And, the, and, and even thinking back to things I was reading and a few other kind of passages from a cultural perspective, a lot of the assumptions that we make as designers are actually based upon what are largely you know, white male Western-leaning cultures. And that does not necessarily represent what we find in the United States, in different communities through the United States and all places around the world. You know, there's a lot of biases and data biases that we have in the information that we've received. And some of these data sets go back decades of information, and that's material that needs to largely be rewritten and rethought about. So what we started thinking about is, you know, how do our biases and assumptions start to affect our design of space? There's a lot of notable examples around urban planning when it comes to understanding how different communities of people work and equality of access around pedestrian spaces, around health and safety, and all that type of material. So it really kind of calls to mind almost at a personal level, thinking back on some of my own biases of working in this material, but also looking towards as we, you know, our practice engages in a lot of placemaking and urban design, and really thinking, where is this information coming from? What purpose did it serve at that time? And is there a possibility that we might have some inherent biases in us in that entire process? I think that the last place that really comes to mind for me on this is thinking about kind of the, the whole modernist project and the sort of potential concerns about the racist kind of foundations of modernism's focused on these universal ideals uh, as opposed to indigenous knowledge and populations and, and styles of architecture. And a lot of it kind of manifests in, on our present-day approaches towards urban design, housing, and things like that. Now, ultimately, that's not a problem technology can necessarily solve, but we have to keep those sort of issues in mind when we're exploring these solution spaces enabled through technology, through data, through computational design, to ensure we're not defaulting to any of these kind of concerning modernist biases. Really, really uh, adroit observation on that. I was just this last week having a wonderful phone call with a woman by the name of Aladia Smoke, who is an indigenous architect out of Canada. And she speaks about these ideas of looking through the eyes of the indigenous people 
to a particular land to better understand a sensitivity to design in urban places, to understand how the land ought to be at rest, about how we should be thinking differently about environmental constructs and concerns. And it, you, you just tipped that off for me when you said that, because it's looking through ancient eyes at a place and not superimposing a colonialist uh, lens over the top of that to be able to be more aware and sensitive to the design of places and spaces. Pretty important. Uh, Roberta, we find you up in Vancouver, speaking of Canada. And it's very interesting because we, we're watching this pervasive explosion of technology within design firms. Recently, I was on a phone call with a, a board of directors who is putting together their new executive committee for the firm. And they had chosen everyone they thought should be on this committee. And I said to them, where is your technology leader? And of course, you always get these funny looks on these Zoom screens. And uh, they said, we don't understand. Why would we put the tech person on the executive committee? And I said, well, maybe you don't. May I ask how important and critical is technology to the strategy and fulfillment of your vision for the firm? And that's where it came down to right there, right? <laughs> where, where does, where's the technology leader play in the future? Some thoughts? So, you know, because I've come from a couple of other industries, uh, you know, when I joined uh, right out of my MBA program, uh, JP Morgan on Wall Street, they were just coming to the realization that, hey, we're a tech company that does finance. We're no longer going to be running around with slips of paper on the trading floor. We're going to automate this, and we're going to have this supply chain of trading exchanges through brokerages. So they actually did across the board salary raise for the tech people, and they sort of the board got the religion of tech. I don't know what caused that because I was just sort of earlier in my career then, but it was pretty exciting and a number of really interesting developments. A company called Tibco came out of that, which was distributing data around the exchanges globally and other things. And then the same thing happened about, I don't know, like 15 years later when I joined Hearst in New York, where we hired the first ever CTO and they said, we're a tech company that does media. And up till then, you know, we'd been producing newspapers and magazines and TV and cable and all sorts of things for years. And so I'm predicting, and I'm sort of telling my team, that we're getting close to that in this industry as well. Something will happen that'll flip over that says, oh, we're at a board level and we don't have this voice and we don't know what to say. And it's not something you can read a few, you know, Harvard Business School articles and Harvard Business Review articles and sort of know it. Those of us who've worked for years in tech know that there's some really special skills that just like anyone in the design profession, I would myself not be able to go in and do their work. Um, we've learned a lot. And I will say methodologies like Agile for development are fairly mature and um, they're really an enormous skills gap with our, let's say, very technical people in terms of like, how do you build software? If you give software to an engineering team, uh, they will you know, build something, but it won't be, it'll be kind of, I would say, a little eccentric if you don't put in some regular sort of processes from our industry. So, you know, I'm optimistic, but at times frustrated that we're not quite there yet in this industry. I think it'll happen, but I don't know what'll push it over the edge that we end up getting sort of that religion that, oh, tech really does need to be at the table. But we keep saying it, and we will keep saying it, so... Yeah, that's great. Nick, what's, how is technology from a governance standpoint viewed within the broad scope of Perkins and Will? 
We're involved in almost everything. It's probably the one constant, I think, essentially in the industry now, but certainly between different markets or different practices. So we're involved quite a bit. You can imagine uh, with the pandemic, this idea of return to studio, return to work, we've been heavily engaged with that also with when we went from the studios to work from home. So we're heavily engaged there and almost on every committee that I can think of across the corporation, specifically with even uh, our JEDI initiative, working together with the leadership there to help look through the data and gain the insights that we've been working towards over the past several or 18 months or so. I've been saying to business leaders for the last several years how important it is for them to adopt some of the lingua franca of technology so that at minimum they can understand what you folks are talking about, but ideally they'd be able to engage in a viable discussion. I say the same thing to the technology leaders about the lingua franca of business. I was recently a guest at a a gathering of lots of technology leaders and proposed a set of business constructs to them, and it was extraordinary to hear the crickets. I'm not sure if they understood at all what I was talking about because I'm coming from a business context and the majority wanted to talk about apps as opposed to what the app had to do with solving fundamental business problems. So I think that's often a problem where we have a disconnect in our lingua francas and how important it is for us to cross over and learn the business of the language of business and vice versa to learn the languages of technology, not to have to become fluent, but to be able to have viable and meaningful conversations with each other. Shane, you know, you play an enterprise role within your organization at Woods Bagot. Tell us how technology is understood within the governance stack of that organization. I think it's been only somewhat recently that we've started more formally looking at how technology could be treated as an integrated strategic asset. I, I know in our last podcast, we talked a little bit about that, about you know technology not being seen as a necessary evil, but you know a key part of delivering the firm's vision and ideally even how it differentiates itself. You know How can we position technology to deliver on that vision within the practice and what structures are needed in place? Does it need a, do we need a CTO position? Do we need you know involvement in the board and the executive, things like that? So there's, there's a recognition that the technology conversation is not about infrastructure technologies anymore. What's I think gotten a lot more interesting though, and you made this comment just a second ago about the language of technology. And I, I find that is absolutely seeping into our business right now. Quite a few years ago, we started talking about UX, user experience, you know, pulling over from software design and a number of different other, you know, terms that came out of that sort of space to start asking some more fundamental questions about what our product is. What do we do? What are we creating? Now, maybe we're not going to go quite to the mindset that Roberto was talking about yet. In, and, and I think we've got some work to get to that mindset as well of thinking about we're a technology firm that does architecture. But we did start asking these questions, well, what is our product? Is it really drawing specifications and schedules anymore? Well, that's what our contracts say. But what are we actually doing with that? And this is where we started having some really good conversations about our product actually being spatial experience. And this is where I think the consulting wing of our partner company, ERA, and some of the other groups that work with us come into play, which is we start thinking about spatial experience as being increasingly mediated or embedded with technology. Uh, and then well, ultimately, what does that mean we need to do as a practice? Are there new kinds? 
kinds of products that fit that sort of model? Do we need to have new business models? Do we need to have new business units? Do we need to be governed in different ways? Do we have to manage the kind of pace of business and interactions with consultants and clients in different ways? So we have started to start to, to look into that territory to think about perhaps there's some different business models or units within the organization or spinoffs of the company. We've looked at partnering with other companies to help fund or support or work with financially supporting different software endeavors. There's been a lot of it going on, but I would say we're very much still in the earliest stages of that. We're mostly just focusing at the moment on more fundamental operational aspects of our work, like how can we better inform our design decisions through analytics and simulation, and how can we build tools that reflect our company culture that help us deliver on the work that we're trying to do. But I I do think that this is going to be probably one of the top things that happens over the next number of years. And I've seen quite a few uh, architecture firms finally take over on the formal role of a CTO, being a board-level conversation. We're not there yet, but um, I, I do see that this is coming up a lot more frequently in the industry. Yeah, and I'm pleased to see that. I'm hoping it will accelerate rather than take years for us to get there. I remember, Holly, when you were just brought into Sasaki, uh, what, about a year and a half ago, and how important of a decision that was for that firm to bring someone in of your consequence. How do you see yourself operating now that you've gotten your feet wet and jumped right into a pandemic in helping to guide the firm overall? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, it's been a year and a half, but, you know, I had not anticipated starting with very nuts and bolts um, IT. I was really more focused on the practice and thinking about how we could move, move the practice forward and, and closer to the actual, you know, business deliverables. But with the quarantine, it's really pushed me back towards, like, what are the nuts and bolts of design and how do we have technology support that in a remote environment. So, you know, we've really spent our time moving to the cloud and then figuring out how to design in a collaborative way. Like, how do we maximize our interconnectedness and our ability to collaborate? You know, that's a really clear question, um, but it's not where I started. No. <laughs> For us, our um, our experience is being um, even heightened a little bit because we are in the process of moving our building and then re- rebuilding a new office. And so we will be going on a longer um, hiatus than some of the other firms might be in terms of not having a physical space. So it's it's both a recentering and refocusing because of where we are right now, but I think it's also an accelerant to really push a firm, all of our firms probably, to change more rapidly than we normally would have in particular ways. I also, it's been really interesting to see things take off that, you know, I was getting ready to sort of abandon, which is like basic online surveys. You know, we've built in really great ways to gather feedback from our um, clients and our constituents, whether it's interactive website or storytelling or map and all these great tools that our strategies team turns out. But, you know, nothing beats a good old survey online um, in some cases. And so... Um, some technologies that I was ready to start to write off have started to come back a little bit more. And so it's just it's just interesting to see how we are all changing within this particular context. And then what will the next year in particular bring for us? Um, how much of the remnant of this quarantine and pandemic will be left in the way that we do our work? I think it's clear in terms of like the office space. I think there's clearer questions there. But in terms of engagement and collaboration and travel and thinking together, I think we still... Well, I have a lot to learn there, and I look forward to focusing on that in the next year. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, there's there's no 
need for us to leap over infrastructure. It's important that our infrastructure is in place and that you as technology leaders are ensuring that utility level of sustainability, maintainability, scalability of our infrastructure. So, so critical. But I'm hoping more and more that you are able to find good, solid people, engineers who can play in that space and whom you can depend on so that you can move most of your time out of that into helping to govern the firm with decision support, with understanding what technology can do, not just to advance design, but to advance the business of design, which is so, so important for us going forward. We continue to be challenged on multiple fronts in this industry, in some cases the commoditization of rates and and it's important for us to show that there is a higher value to design than following down in this commoditization trend that's been going on. And I believe that technology is going to be a prime mover in showing the true value aspects of design. And that's what I want to see across this space is that technology leaders are celebrated on an ongoing basis as essential to the business of the work that we're doing. I would say, Dave, you know, where I've seen a lot of change that I think some of us in technology watch very closely, maybe it's because our industry moves so fast and we're constantly adopting and obsoleting products, is that the digitization of design and the processes is going to restructure the industry. And it's going to restructure, I've recently become very interested in a term that you guys on this call probably know a whole lot more than I do, this whole area of design assist. You know, I've been dreaming, well, could we build 3D studios, one of my guys calls it BIM caves, that are almost like sort of a Hollywood-level tech-enabled 3D place where we can bring clients, so there is a reason to go to the studio. And when we get a really data-rich, awesome design, we hand it off to a design assist to move it into a 2D drawing set. Question is, we've made our money over the years on the rates on 2D drawing sets. What happens to people when it can be done cheaper or automated? I mean, I'm starting to see AI that can build an electrical system in a building or, you know, some of the integrated work we do. And so there's these large questions pending around, well, what is a designer when some of these, especially design assist tasks, start to get either automated or we can send them somewhere else and do it at a third of the cost or something. And so, you know, I saw this when I worked with newspapers and what happened when an article is, piece of content is playing very well on the front page of a website, they were just automatically outsourcing the next piece of content to groups that were not even in North America to create content because people were clicking on certain topics and stories. And so it was changing the role of an editor, not for the best, and many of the editors of large newspapers who curated their view of the news, sometimes without even a lot of data to kind of inform what should the top 10 headlines be in the days of print newspapers. So I think some of that industry restructuring is going to come to this industry maybe a little bit slower. And I think there is a place for technology to say there's, you know, a risk here that if we don't look at what these people are doing in that role and how we're making our money from that job, which is being, uh, it was changing dramatically, that uh, there'll be some issues. I'm not sure at the board level, if you're not really that close to the work, how in touch with that you are. I just don't know. I guess it depends on sort of different project delivery models. I think one thing that I see about this as well to kind of piggyback a bit on what Roberto was just talking about is we're finding, I think, people like the group of us and people in similar positions who are within architecture design firms right now also asserting themselves broader out in the industry. 
So it's much more pointed, much more kind of idea-centric, but also impactful conversations with some of the larger software companies and software vendors, with uh, contractors, with others that are out there really trying to push things along rather than being on a reactive mode of saying, oh, yes, well, we're just going to digitize what is an inherently analog process. But instead, like starting to ask much more probing questions and, and, and asking more of the industry, asking more of our peers and more of the software industry that works with us and everywhere else. So I, I'm also finding a much more kind of activist streak amongst those involved in technology within design practices in really asking for change in the industry. Sort of brings us back to the full circle to so the beginning of our conversation around the importance of, you know, who's in the room, who's developing these new technologies as they're starting to automate or take over some of the traditional roles that we have as architects. And who's in the process, who's creating those algorithms, who's, you know, who is doing this work and making sure that it's people who represent the communities we serve or the clients that the values that they are working on. So if we don't get this right, we have the opportunity to get this right in the architecture field, right? We're, we are a little behind in some of the other fields, but I think that gives us an opportunity to learn from some of the mistakes that have been made before us. Great insight. A lot of what Holly just said is, is what I was thinking. And I think it does bring it back to the beginning you know, the best designers are the best because they have empathy and they have empathy for the communities that they're serving uh, and their clients and all is wanting to do the best. And that's something that I don't think an algorithm can take over, not in my lifetime, I hope anyway. So that that's where it comes back to this idea of the UX design or the human-centered design. We need humans in the center of that to make it happen. And I feel like what Shane was just saying as I'm sure his firm is doing and our firm's doing is we're looking for those partners out there that are doing the best work. Uh, if it's around fabrication or design assist to see how we can change, uh, but change for the better and not just become, I think, like you said, Dave, doing the commodity, the people who are at the top of the game in this field are not in it to do it for the commodity, you know, just to do it over and over again, it's to do something special and help the communities that we serve. Yeah, fantastic. I, I'm curious. I want to ask you all about diversity within your technology teams. And I'm talking here about gender, race, creed, orientation, levels of diversity. Are you seeing that your technology teams, and I'm talking folks from the guys managing the server stacks and the infrastructure and networks to folks who are managing data and dealing with those constructs or folks who are dealing with, with application development or app development and across this whole continuum, are you seeing that your teams are diverse as we talk about diversity in the design industry? Are we looking at diversity within technology? I'm asking this question because years ago, when I was in Silicon Valley, I'll never forget this, back in the late 90s, there was one black technology executive that were in the top 50 companies. That was it one guy. And I'm, I'm curious if we're seeing more diversity in technology in your organizations, or if there's work that we need to do around that space. I think we struggle because the, the intersection of architecture and technology, both groups that are historically been overwhelmingly white male. And when you start having that sort of intersection within the business, it can be quite difficult. I know we have uh, had some difficulties in, in hiring people in the past 
But one of the things that I started to better understand is something I'm, I'm always going to have to start grappling with are some of my own kind of unconscious biases when it comes to who it is I hire based upon my past experience. And starting to think about opportunities of hiring for potential, not necessarily for experience, because the people that you're wanting to bring into your business, you're wanting to uh, really diversify the collection of perspectives and opportunities within your business, the person that you may be wanting to hire simply may not have had access to the same opportunities that provided the experience that you had. And it's absolutely something that we were continuing to work on. We're, I, I would say we're nowhere near it. I'd say Witzbag has done a really good job when it comes to gender diversity. We still have a lot of work to do when it comes to leadership, but that takes a lot of mentorship, a lot of development and investment in the career passive of staff in the company. And we're leaning in very strongly to that effort. But I also think there's a lot of work to be done, both in architecture and technology, for encouraging and supporting the next generation. Was when I look towards the even the diversity within uh, university programs when it comes to ethnic diversity, it's not there. It's absolutely not there. I think one of the difficulties we run into is what happens to people who are not interested in getting that particular career because they don't see good exemplars out there. They don't see people who look like them or might come from their background. We've done in New York, we've been heavily involved in the ACE Mentorship Program. It's a not-for-profit that basically works with high school students to consider careers in design and construction uh, through mentorship. And I've done sessions specifically on technology and architecture and showing them what are the opportunities in that sort of space as well. It also involves us leaning in towards various kind of community colleges and other groups that might be ones that we wouldn't have normally looked at in terms of you know people to potentially hire from uh, universities that aren't on the kind of typical top five list of architecture schools and start thinking about what sort of things uh, do they bring to the table? What are the opportunities we get through that? I think the last thing for me is that I'm always kind of in the spot of recognizing that as a white male, I have a tremendous amount of privilege. And any opportunity that I can use to wield that privilege to make a change, it's my job. It's my responsibility to do that. You know, and I think in small examples like you know, I, I went through and I've uh, signed what's called the Panel Pledge for the Male Champions of Change, which is a group that uh, came about in Australia that effectively says that I, I won't be involved in panel sessions that does not include uh, gender diversity, you know, a strong representation of, of, of gender there. And it's actually come to play, sadly, a few times in the last year and a half where I've had to make that threat of, you know, I won't be involved in this panel. We need to, to make some change in the event leadership for for sessions that I'm involved in. But I think it's one of the responsibilities of those of us who are in a privileged position to make that sort of change and to make that sort of push. Yeah, thank you. Roberto, what does the diversity mix look like for dialogue design in the technology space, and how are you addressing that? Yeah, good question, Dave. Well, the hiring pool is small. So when you go out for any roles, we're already dealing like the design side of things with less diversity to pick from. And so uh, we have done our best to fill roles that are quite diverse. I have a different bias when I look at somebody and see their potential maybe than an architect who's been with the firm for a long time and used to seeing you know, a white male in that role. So we've made some changes that I'm super excited about and some high potential women, especially that are, are really adding to the team and, and the, the diversity on the team are, they're also seeing that, that, Hey, we don't have to all look the same. Look at what that person is doing for us. You know, on the strictly foundational infrastructure stuff, which is really, really important across 
most of my career, it's been really low percentages of diversity, maybe race diversity, not a lot of gender. But I feel like the team we have is very sensitive and we're sort of an ideas team and we kind of do our best to to uh, promote that. I know at Sasaki, there's been a very intentional effort to um, try to bring equity and inclusion into the mix within the firm. Uh, Holly, how are you witnessing that and what challenges are there that you're experiencing in your space? So for the IT and the strategies team, which is sort of as our, you know, our developers and our core IT team and then our digital practice teams, you know, so we have a lot of work to do, much like my colleagues, um, all the same constraints. But I also think there's a lot of opportunities here, meaning um, I think the impact that we can have on our communities and the interaction with the way that they develop and change is actually a great draw to this generation who's not necessarily just interested in working for the paycheck. Um, there's a lot of great people out there that are very uh, sort of principle and values driven, especially this, this generation that's coming up. I think they're looking for work that reflects that. And so um, we've been actually having great success um, in really talking to some tech firms, people that are at tech firms that are doing sort of classic tech work, programming de- developers, and, you know, they don't want to learn how to, you know, sell another piece of furniture better. They want to figure out, like, what's wrong with their transportation system or, you know, how to build a better neighborhood. And so... I think there are some opportunities that we have in this field that we might not be have in other fields to diversify. And, you know, I think we also have to start thinking differently. I was just thinking about um, the proactive nature of the relationships we have to build. It's, you know, it's not with universities, actually. It's, it's with community colleges. It's with groups like Resilient Coders, who we're working with right now, who brought us some really great, awesome candidates who they work with in a training program. They train them the hard and soft skills. They, you know, help get them into projects so they can show work that they've actually done. And they were great in helping us find a great candidate pool that was very diverse and very qualified, both in their current class as well as their alumni network, which is quite that vast. They've just expanded to a program to Philly now, too. You know, and was reviewing the resumes, I caught myself thinking, like, when you're writing the job description, you know, just often you'll say, like, needs two to three years of office experience in addition to all, like, the technical things. I was like, but if there's if they were a home healthcare aide, they've never been in an office before, do I care? No, maybe I don't care. They have a college degree, they you know can program the heck out of something, fine. And in some cases, maybe they don't even need a college degree. But I think starting to think about how we post the jobs and the language you use is also really important. Again, back to nuts and bolts, be practical. Like, what are we already biasing ourselves at the very beginning of when we're asking for people to come join our teams and what does that look like? And we have to build those relationships before we need the person um, to get the most diverse candidate pool. We're looking to start up an internship program uh, and then even sponsor people into coding boot camps and things like that because we can't wait for them to come through the ACE program. So we're just trying to be more active and get out there and, and find those folks to bring them in. This has been an extraordinary conversation. I'm sure not a typical conversation for a group of technology leaders to be focusing here on these topics of equity and diversity and impact this way. But I wanted to take it that way because you are leaders and like Shane and and, uh, Roberta were talking about being more activist in this space is really what it's going to take is going ahead and taking the risk to be disagreed with. And taking the risk to step forward on this is is how we transform things. You know, that's how it happens. But we're going to run out of time at this point. And so my question to you is, you guys want to do this again with us in a few months? Absolutely. Yeah. This is like the most fun conversation I have. <laughs> each month we have. 
Oh, I, I totally agree. Even listening to uh, you recommend resilient coders, I immediately wrote that, that down as a note. That I'm learning things just by listening to the rest of you. So all for it. Maybe one of these days in person. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great. Yes, I'm totally game. That's fantastic. You know, we're going to be in La Jolla for, we usually hold an event at Design Futures Council in January. Of course, we couldn't do it this January. So we delayed it till the end of July with great hopes that that we'll be able to be out and about at that time. And so we'll be together on July 21st and 22nd in La Jolla, California. We're going to be speaking about radical innovation and what that means and where technology plays a major part in that. And we have uh, folks from different industries speaking into us. We're going to hear from the folks in biotechnology. We're going to hear from an, some industrial organic farmers who are applying AI to optimizing crop yields. And we're going to be hearing from uh, a major healthcare leader of a significant institution and how they decided to apply another industry's work to their industry, which created a significant pivot in their productivity and their care for patients. And, of course, the big question to us is, what's wrong with us? Why can't we do that? And so we're looking forward, and, and we're going to make that a physical event. So I don't know. Maybe you guys want to show up, and we'll go and, and, and get a drink together and sit and keep these conversations going. But if not, then we'll be doing this another time. Thank you all for taking the time to, to meet and, uh, and keep this conversation going. So with that, we'll mark this with a comma. Until next time. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This Is Design Intelligence. Sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. The producer for This Is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells. Sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.